Yeah. Hey, I think Patty Parks is in the building. Is she, where is she? Patty, stand, please. Where are you? Patty Parks is one of our missionaries. Um, she is in Ireland. Um, I'm so glad to see you, Patty. I haven't seen you yet, so glad you made it safe. Know you had some travel uh, issues, and uh, good to have you. I'm sure we'll be hearing from her in the weeks to come. Please greet her and tell her how much we love her and continue to pray for her as she ministers in a place that we can't get to. So we sent her. And uh, uh, so we'll look forward to hearing from her as um, the weeks go on and her furlough. Um, just, I, I just want to reiterate a little bit what Jerry said. This movie tonight, The Essential Church, is such an important movie, I think, for the church today. Please do everything you can to come out. We've been advertising it on the radio. Um, we're hoping that people from the public would come out and hear this. Uh, it is just an excellent movie to help us understand not only what happened during COVID, but what is now capable of happening very quickly to the church in America. So uh, please clear your calendars and come out tonight with us. And then you can buy some candy and help the youth group too, it sounds like. (laughs) All right, well, we're going to teach today on the sanctity of life. It is Sanctity Life Sunday. And I've been working on a message all week that I'm excited to to deliver to you from God's word. And I trust it it will capture your heart. We'll be in Psalms 139 and Job chapter 31 this morning. Let's pray. Father, it is great to be together, Lord. The church is your bride. You've collected us from all walks of life. You knew us before the foundations of the world, and you did not miss us. You had a time appointed for our salvation. And even before that, as we'll learn today, you had a time appointed for our birth, and you were there, even in our conception. You were forming us and making us with plans to save us, redeem us. Oh, what glorious thoughts we have of a God so intimate and so personal. And yet, Lord, we, the church, are in a world that is in a culture of death. Thousands and thousands of babies that are murdered each and every day around the world. And it all stems because they don't know you. So today, Lord, we want to know you more. We want, our, we want our understanding of the sanctity of life to be driven by our theology of the Scripture. So help us, Lord. Help us to know what you say about life. Let that be our argument. What God has taught us from his word. Lord, help us as we think through this. So we need to be gracious and kind, but we need to be truthful. Lord, we thank you for... Patty being here. So good to see her, Lord. I pray that you would bless her trip here. Refresh her, strengthen her. We pray for the rest of the missionaries that we participate with, that we come alongside and at least uphold them monetarily and in prayer, Lord. We pray for them that you would give them strength. The battles that rage here in America rage overseas as well and and, and new issues, Lord, issues that we don't. And we pray, we pray for them, Lord. Meet their needs, sustain them. I pray you'd encourage them in a special way today. Lord, I thank you for each and every one that are here. So many healthy people in one spot, but yet we have others who have gone through procedures this week or battling cancer who are coming towards the end of their life in some cases, Lord, and cannot be with us. We know many of them are watching now, Lord, online. We pray that you would strengthen them and bless them. I thank you particularly for those in our church that visit our shut-ins, who go to our retirement homes, who pray and teach and love and care for those. Lord, I pray you'd bless them in a special way. Lord, may we be mindful because we may be there soon, someday ourselves. Lord, thank you for a church that can care for the newborns, to the elderly, Lord. May we do that well in every circumstance. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. When it comes to sanctity of life, what makes Christians different? There's a lot of people out there marching on sanctity of life. If you watch a little bit of the news this week, you will see that. I watched an interview with a young woman who said, I'm, they said, why are you here? She said, I'm here because my parents were very liberal and they aborted four of my siblings. I did not come to an understanding of that till later, um, but I'm here just to march for them so that they have a voice, and I think that's admirable and honorable. But 
that's not why we stand completely for sanctity of life. Our understanding of sanctity of life hinges on our view of God. It has to. The Christian's view of sanctity of life, abortion and life, and all of those things that happen in the womb, they have to hinge on our view of God. And when we look at a passage like Psalms 139 that Pastor Gary just read for us, it helps us establish a high view of God. It's it's one of my jobs that I do here. (laughs) I study and, and help you and help me understand a higher and higher view of God. That's that's what God's charged me to do. And and when it comes to issues like sanctity of life, if your view is not growing higher and higher of God, you're going to possibly change that view or lessen what it should be. Now, throughout the psalm, this is a psalm of worship. And, And David, in this psalm, focuses on the attributes of God like he does in so many places. And, and, and in the other psalms and throughout the scriptures, we see the word of God just speaking of the um, undeniable statements of God's attributes and who he is and, and his greatness. And we see it, right? We, we see David say things like, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. We, we see him talk about, the psalmist and others talk about the heavens and the earth were created by him and all that's in them. We hear words like, oh, the depths and riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are the judgments and unfathomable his ways. Let the mountains and valleys praise him. Let the seas clap their hands and so forth, right? We, we see all of that throughout the scriptures, all speaking of the attributes of God as creator and sustainer and these things that we witness with our eyes. But Psalms 39 is a little different. It personalizes the attributes of God and how he interacts with us. When you go look at the mountains, you go, wow, God is amazing. When you look at this passage, you look at a God who knows every cell and fiber of you. And so David comes to grips with the intimacy of his relationship with God. There are three main attributes that you see throughout this psalm. There's many others, but three that we concentrate on. And I want you to see how personal they are. Look at the first six verses just briefly. We first see the omniscience of God, that God knows all things. Look at the personal aspect. Oh, Lord, you have searched me, and you know me, David says. You know, when I... When I sit down and when I arise, you understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Look at that word, intimately. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it. You have enclosed me behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Intimacy with God's omniscience. It is the difference between a born-again believer. There are a lot of people who think there's a God, a higher power, something going out there. A born-again believer says, God knows me. <laughs> he knows me deeply. He is concerned with me intimately. He knows when I have to lay my head down and when I rise it up, it's that much. Does he care that much when you roll over in your sleep? That's a personal God. The next stanza is his omnipresence. This is a God who is everywhere at all times, 7 through 12. Where can I go from your spirit? No, the intimacy again. Where can I, I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in shield, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand leads me. And your right hand will Lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as a day and darkness and light are like alike to you. Brothers and sisters, he is with you. He's with you in your despair. He's with you in your joy. He's with you in every season of life and every place in life. In fact, he loves you so much when he saved you so that you can never be out of his presence. Think about this. He gives you his own spirit so that it's assured you'll never be out of his presence. 
And so this isn't the spirit that comes and goes and, and, you know, does all these things. No, no, he resides in you permanently. Man, that's personal. Don't look any, make sure you understand God, the spirit is God with us. As we get into our passage today, we get into his omnipotence and and God is absolutely all-powerful in such a personal way. But you see, God knows us thoroughly, not, not only because he can see all things, but because, I think about this, because he fashions us and he makes us and he, and he made us in his image and, and, and we are so deeply known by him. This is what David wants to get across to us. And only God alone, only God alone possesses the ability to see the invisible only God alone has, an, uh, has access where man cannot go. He goes into our heart, doesn't he? It's within his own nature that he himself, he contains the ability to function in places that man is not allowed. This is how personal it is. David is establishing this deep personal understanding of God in these first two stand-ups. So my goal this morning, as we think about sanctity of life, is to elevate your view of God, grasp his personal and precise care of our created souls and our person that belongs to that soul. And I want theology to guide our understanding of how we handle the unborn and how we think about the unborn. And then we'll respond properly. And we'll know how to respond in worship to him. And we'll know how to fight the battle that rages from this world against our God, who even God personally knitted them together. We'll know how to deal with that. Okay? Three thoughts. Number one. Captivate, uh, captured by the personal care of our all-powerful God. Captured by the personal care of our all-powerful God. Look at verse 13 through 18 with me. For you formed my inward parts. Again, notice this intimacy here. You wove me in my mother's womb. I give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth, your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that are ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. And when I awake, I am still with you. Well, if you truly want to know God deeply, you must think biblically. You cannot form God outside of the Bible in your mind. You must think biblically. We must meditate on God's word, meditate on his power and authority and how it affects us from conception to eternity. I think that's what this, this chapter is doing. How does the love of God affect me from conception to eternity? This is what motivates us as Christians. And so we get to this section here when we're on the omnipotence of God. And David is not thinking about God's omnipotent power in some kind of abstract way. He's thinking of the Almighty God's personal, intimate relationship with him. And though it's not explicitly mentioned here, and it doubtlessly is what David is marveling at as well, that God's power to predetermine his existence even is marked in here. You're not some kind of mistake. Listen, this passage teaches us you're not even a product of your parents. <laughs> you are in a biological way, but God knows you. He has purposed you to be here. And David's marveling at that. And David's deep trust in God begins with the fact that God knows him so that now that allows him to proclaim that God made him. And the psalm explodes in worship as he thinks through that this almighty God was forming him in his unseen substance. He was there forming him. That's, that's the relationship David wants the world to know. Now, obviously, abortion 
was not part of David's world. David knew the horrors of war. He knew that pregnant women were often cut open so that their babies would be murdered. And here's why they did it, to cut off the next generation. He had seen that in war, doubtlessly. Today, they argue that a woman has rights to an abortion because it's her body. And in order to justify this willful death of the unborn child, they, they convince themselves that it's not a person. You have to do that. You can't murder somebody if you, if, if you know they're a person, right? And so there's a convincing of the conscience that has to take on. And, and so what happens is, unfortunately, this happens, and, and maybe you're here, and, and, and let me just put a little clip here real quick. If you're here, sister or brother, who had some involvement in an abortion, I want you to stay with me through this. Because Christ forgives sin. Don't forget that. But we have to understand how we get there, how, how devastating sin is and how consciences have to be seared and that's what sin does. And so though they, they know that there is something living within them, they lie long enough and loud enough to convince their conscience that the child that, that has DNA that can only, only be connected to them. And, and that child moves and sleeps and receives nourishment and develops individual fingerprints and has brain activity, teaching us that they're learning already and they're, they are identified in so many human being ways that are uncountable. And, 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 and get this, all that's taking place often before a woman even knows she's pregnant. They have to somehow sear that conscience to make that child a tissue and not a person. David is doing everything inspired by God to show us that this is a person equated intimately by God. It's clear, brothers and sisters, the father's seed and the mother's egg cannot create life on themselves. Life is created when they come together. And as soon as those two sets of chromosomes combine, a human life is come. God gives it life, and there's, there's life inside the womb. And at David's thought of this, he is struck by this all-powerful God who knew him in the womb. Look at verse 13 again with me. You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. See, David proves the character of God by speaking of his ability to skillfully form chosen words by God, by the Spirit of God, skillfully form his inward parts. David doubtlessly understood the workings of the inward parts if he's speaking of kidneys and livers and lungs and hearts and other vital organs, these inward parts. These people were not dumb. I think sometimes people look at Old Testament in the ancient days and say, well, we've learned so much now. Cain went out into the desert after he rejects God and he builds instruments from the dirt. Anybody want to go out and try that? Are you smart enough to go out and build a rake? I mean, these people were brilliant. Egyptians knew how the body functioned. And at death, they had cylinders. Gina's going to be mad at me because I forget the names of these things. Um, um, that they put hearts and lungs and kidneys in, and they knew those were valuable inward parts, and they wanted them preserved for the afterlife, and they were dead wrong in their view of the afterlife. But they knew this stuff, Right? David comes along and says, you understand the function of my kidneys. You fun understand the function of my liver, my lungs, my heart. You know me, and you're forming my inward parts. And I believe David probably understood even beyond that, that this is beyond physical. This was actually spiritual as well. And he knew that he was made in the image of God, that God had formed him. And so he formed his emotions and, his, and the seed of his emotion, the heart, the spiritual heart of a person. He gave him a moral compass. And so he's saying, you know me inward, you're forming me. You're making me like your image. And that made all the difference to David as he pondered the loving omnipotence of his God. See, this leads David to speak or proclaim of God's weaving or knitting him together. Notice the word wove. It's a beautiful word in the Hebrew. It speaks of a woman who takes a fine needle and and craft something. It has the idea of interweaving and interlacing. It speaks of somebody who is a craftsman weaving something together and that 
is what our loving God was doing. And all of this creative work of God is done in the mother's womb, beginning nine months before the birth. Isn't that amazing? Then you say, well, Scott, what about deformities? This great God of yours, this wonderful God of yours, what do we do about deformities? Well, I can't answer every question except that this, that God makes no mistakes. He's perfect in all that he does, and he even uses this fallen world to bring about his purposes. Years ago, when my dear friend Paul Anthos was alive, he's now passed, and now that's why we take care of Compassion for Congo, but him and I were dear friends. We went to seminary together and spent many times, and as you know, they have a little abbey. When Abby was in the womb of Jenny, Paul's widow, who still takes care of Abby, Abby had little to no brain function. They said, your daughter is not going to be able to do anything. You need to abort her now. They didn't know they were speaking to one who put their trust in God. Paul began to explain to them this. And I'll never forget it. He said, God wove her together perfectly for us. Paul has gone to be with the Lord, Jenny. His widow is still taking care of her. She's in her 30s. See, we can't answer all of those questions. There's things that we don't know why God did things. We'll have to wait. He'll tell us in time and when we're there and we'll understand things more fuller as we grow in our understanding throughout eternity. But here's what we know. He makes no mistakes and he even uses the fall to bring about his purposes. Paul and Jenny would tell you our life would never be the same if he would not have gifted us with that child. This is the way we have to learn to think. Look at verse 14 with me. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. How wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. He says, I give thanks to you. At this point, the only thing David can do is he's thinking about this omnipotent, intimate God is he just breaks out in praise for his wonderful omnipotence. We, We should do the same. Got any flaws? When you looked in the mirror to get ready for church, did you go, oh. <laughs> are you perfect? I mean, are, are you the specimen that we should put out there? Or are you suffering from the fall? See, when we start to think about this, we begin to realize that God is worthy because he fashioned and formed us. And even in this fallen world, and we only have so much life if he does not return, if our Lord does not return, we're going to die. He's ordained our days. We'll see that in a few moments. Um, But we accept his hand. We accept his loving omnipotence. And this is what he gave me. (laughs) Now, I should be a good steward of it. But that's part of worship, isn't it? And it's through the knowledge and the greatness and the kindness of God that that David here can proclaim, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made despite what I don't like about myself. Otherwise, you'll just be frustrated with God. Why wasn't I taller, fatter, thinner, faster, slower? (laughs) See, the theology God produces within us an astonishment that he would want a relationship with me. David is familiar with this, Psalms chapter 8. You know this passage. He is viewing the creation of God. I always think he's outside when he wrote this. Um, 8.3 says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, the son of man that you care for him? I mean, watching rockets go up and, people, you know, the Mars rover, and I'm looking at all that stuff that God created, and they, you know, they have no clue, right? They're trying to find life. We'll tell them where life is. Um, uh, but I marvel at it. The vastness of our universe. It's, it's endless to man, right? I mean, we, the, the microscopes, keep, uh, I mean, the, the telescopes keep getting us farther and farther out, and there's still more out there. And David says, you're mindful of us. See, this is where Christians get. This is where we go. We finally get to the point where we we recognize the greatness of God and then we bend our knees to him and say, you thought of me? 
You knew me before the foundations of the world. You formed me in my mother's womb. You, you planned my salvation. You wouldn't let me go. See, it gets very serious, doesn't it? And this is why David at the end of the psalm says, Oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. Look at verse 15 with me. I've got to keep moving. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Man comes from the dust and he returns to the dust in this life. But now David turns to his own body. He says, my body, which is made up of bones and the skeletal system, he, he knew that this could not be hidden from God even in the womb. And so he understood that God had a size and a height and a weight and, and a color of hair. We know he was, he was ruddy in perplexion, like a red-headed, fiery guy, right? Maybe he was Irish. I don't know, Patty. Um, he knew that, right? And he, he, he looked. David said, he, he's seen me in a place where nobody else can see me. And, and think about this, ladies. He designed that to all to happen in a woman's womb, not a man's. He made us unique in those ways. He wants a woman to magnify him through her womb and through her femininity. It's important to God. And David recognizes that in here. Men, do not mistreat women. God gave them a great role to bring him glory. They are called to submit to their husbands as unto the Lord, but God has uniquely designed them to bring glory to him in a unique way. And as a church, we have to keep working at finding those ways to allow those women to exalt Christ, exalt God in their God-given abilities. And at the same time, encourage them to be pictures of Christ's church. I love that this is in here. And he says purposely in verse 13, a mother's womb. There's all kinds of people just losing their brains, thinking a man can somehow become pregnant. And the medical community who is also bought into evolution and all of that, even them are going, you got... X chromosomes and you got an XY chromosome. It, that's it. Right? Oh, don't get me going. Here's a word skillfully. I love this word. This word skillfully was attached to the weavers and the builders of the tabernacle. In fact, God endowed them with giftedness so that they would weave things together where God would choose to come to earth, reside his glory in behind these woven curtains, and there he would fill the tabernacle. It's an, it's an amazing word, and we understand that. And of course, those people were not omnipotent, but God is, and so you have an omnipotent God who's doing the weaving. That's what he did with you, brother and sister. And Dallasly, David was thinking maybe of veins and arteries and muscles and tendons all woven together with the circulatory system of life in the blood. And, and he's thinking about that. Wow, I can stub my toe and it bleeds there and bump my head, it bleeds there. And it hurts at my toe and it hurts at my head. Wow, there's nerves, there's blood, there's muscles holding these arms together. Wow, God, who could have designed this? Verse 16, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book, were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet not one of them. Literally has this idea. David says, God, you looked upon my embryonic state and you knew me. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? You, you looked at me at that time of conception when the sperm of a man and the egg of a woman met, you were there infusing life to me and setting my eternity. It's just, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? And David's proclaiming the greatness of God, that God knew him and ordained the longevity of his life. And while he was still in this unformed state, that's God telling us when life begins, brother and sister. It begins at conception. It is not when you think it. 
Even the Orthodox Jews do not believe life is in the womb. They reject this, and they believe life doesn't happen until they have a child. And so many, many liberal Jews vote for abortion advocates. And yet their God, the God of the Jews, wrote this right for them. And I'm not after them. Most of the world does not understand God's hand in conception. Your eyes, notice this, I love that little phrase, your eyes. Hmm. Quite a few pregnant mamas in this room. One's my daughter-in-law, I see her back there smiling at me. God's watching your child. Maybe somebody in here is pregnant and they don't know it yet. God's watching that child. See, David took that and he built it in many ways. Later he said in Psalms 34, your eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous. He's, and he's attentive, he's listening. So he, he there watches and he listens and he's, he, he knows the righteous and he's watching carefully. And so if the eyes of the Lord are on an unformed, embryonic state, there is no way that he does not know the days of our life. He predetermines our life. He predetermines our salvation from the foundations of the world. He knows us at conception. He is omnipotent in in planning and setting and ordaining the days that we're going to live on this life. Before, look at this, before there was one. And then, make sure you go this step further and say, he secures our eternity through the finished work of his son. So he knows us from the foundations of the world. He's there giving us life at conception. He saves us at the time he's appointed for us to receive the God-given faith. He's with us all through this life. Death is but just a step gap. We're never away from him. He never leaves us or forsakes us. So even in death, he's with us, brings us into eternity, and there forever we're with him. That is a personal God. Do you know him? Listen, there's a lot of people who talk about him. Do you know him? And and, and you'll never know him until you come through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only way to him. There's no other way, Jesus himself said. Now, look at verse 17 and 18. How precious are your thoughts to me. He doesn't just say, how precious are your thoughts, God. Yeah, God, you have some really good thoughts there. No, no, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God? How vast is the sum of them? If I should count them, they should outnumber the sand. Now, go to the beach next time, pick up a handful of sand and just start counting it. I'll give you all day, all right? I'll give your sun up to sun down and see if you can count the sand. Just go out there and tell me what you come back with. I'd really be interested to know. This is, this is a statement of, <laughs> of, of David overwhelmed with the sum of how God thinks about him. He senses that deep love, doesn't he? He's contemplating, listen, the theology of God. He's contemplating who God is, the study of God, the person of God. He's contemplating that, and that's the way we understand life and abortion and all those things. David's given us the answer. Too often I've been asked the question, does God care? Well, give him the sermon. It only comes from those really that are outside of the salvific love of God or they're wrestling with it in some way because verse 18 tells us that God's thoughts are uncountable. He cares. David could go to sleep and rest his head that his omnipotent God was on duty, right? Knowing even him in in his unconsciousness, God was still there, would not leave him. You can't compare anything to this. So theology drives our view of life and death the culture of death that exists in, in America today and throughout the world rejects the God of the Bible because they're not bothered by it. Within this service of preaching, I think something like 28, what's it say on there? 2,800 babies will die Why I preach. Two, life in the womb is not determined by circumstances or position. Go to Job with me. I love this passage of Job. Um, If you've ever been in through any suffering, which would take us all for Christians because we are going to go through trials and temptations, you're going to go through this. But this passage is so dear. 
Job has going through things. He doesn't understand why God has allowed it. He was not privy for the conversation between God and Satan. He doesn't know. His three buddies are there just trashing him. They have no idea what God's doing, and they're offering counsel without knowing what's going on. And so this is a difficult time. They begin to really attack Job's integrity. And so Job responds, and if you drop down to chapter 31, verse 13, just because I'm out of time, I, I want to look at this briefly. If I have despised the claim of my male or female slaves when they filed a complaint against me, what then could I do when God arises? And when he calls me to account, what will I answer him? And then look at this statement in verse 15. Did not he who made me in the womb make him the same one fashioned us in the womb now just briefly there's such a connection between psalms 139 here and job 31 here and you can see god is concerned with human justice right it's crucial to christianity because god's involved right god cares about things he cares about the employee and the boss he he cares about life on this globe right but why is job so heavily concerned what, that, that God is concerned the way he treats his slaves, if he treats them unjustly? Why is Job so concerned if he ignores their cry and their complaint? Why is he terrified at the prospect of God coming to him and saying, what would you do with these that I've put in your possession and, and your responsibility and your stewardship? What did you do with them? Remember in jo- Job's day, slaves had no rights. Their owners could do what they want with them any time. Isn't that the same view of abortion's view of a woman? It's my body. I'll do whatever I want. Job knew that was not true. I do not have the right to not to deal with these people who come to me who I've hurt or I've done something or I've, or I've not listened to them, whatever it is. And he knew that because, notice he says, because God will bring it to account. It's based on equality. God comes through. One of the things I love about the church, and when you study the early church, you know, it's full of Jews and Gentiles and uh, uh, barbarians and, I mean, everything, right? Men, women, slaves, uh, owners, uh, employees and employers. It's full of all those people. And the minute they walk through that door, they step on equal ground in a worship store, in, 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 a, in a worship service. But Paul was constantly reminding them, your brothers and sisters. And we treat each other that way. But verse 15 is the key here. Did, you, did he not made me in the womb make him? He who made me in the womb made him in the same one fashion as in the womb? A couple of things here. Job, tra- listen, Job tracing the rights of his slaves back to the womb. He's not even tracing them back to their parents. He doesn't, weren't your parents the Joneses? No, he's just saying that. He doesn't do that. He doesn't trace back to whatever their parents were. He chases it back before birth. He traces it back to the womb. And, and what, we're, what we were in the womb is the ground. And I think what he's doing, this is the inalienable rights of a human. He's taking it back to that. And this is why the good, uh, good um, pro-life advocates trace it back to their inalienable rights as a human. This is what they do. This is a human in there. And Job does this. Notice also that Job clarifies equality between him and his slaves. Did not he, God, who made me in the womb, make him? That child's precious. And that person, whether they live one day or they live a hundred days or a hundred years, they're precious to God. They're made in his image. And so I think what he's saying, he and I are both utterly dependent creatures on God. We can't live independent of him. We're not self-sufficient on our own. We would never have been born. We belong to a maker. He designed us in his, his, his image. And so there's a responsibility of how we handle one another. In the womb, out of the womb. And then he says, notice that Job does not pay any attention to what the parents' contributions were here. He doesn't, he doesn't pay any attention to that. Job pays no attention to the egg of the mother and the seed of the father. He says, God made me, and God made him. That's so remarkably important. You want to stand for a woman's rights? You want to stand for the life of the baby, the 
the person in that womb, you better get it from God. A woman does have rights. A man has rights. Children have rights. They have, we all have an inalienable right, a human right as a person. And Job here, possibly in the times of Abraham, post-flood, maybe this is where Job is written. We, we're not dead sure, but we think that, is nailing the right of a human being. So many years beforehand. I think what he's saying is, look, what happens in the womb, it happens because of God, and it is central, and it is crucial, and it is not some mere natural development. And, and, and look, we, we document the stages of gestation from embryo to birth because God designed it that way and we marvel at it. We, we see pictures and images. Gina and I were talking about the differences between our new granddaughter and our first images of the children when we had our first sonograms. Wow, like, yeah, I, I can see his eyelashes. I mean, it's amazing what they're doing. And, and, and Colton and Becky have been so kind to us with this little granddaughter of ours coming each month. They've told us how big she is and what's developing on her. And so it's been so wonderful to be a part of that. And we're, we're grateful for them. But let me say, this is not natural development. This is God, <laughs> creator, developing my granddaughter. It's precious to him. And so it's very precious to me. It's his handiwork. And when we say this is some kind of evolutional development, we rob God of his glory. So what happens in the womb matters. It's God's work. And there are so many reasons why abortion is wrong, but listen, brothers and sisters, ultimately abortion is wrong because it attacks the person forming God. That's why it's wrong. That's where we stand, brothers and sisters. This is an attack on God. Same with marriage and all the other things that we're constantly battling as Christians from the world. It's an attack on our God, and we have the answer. Believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. We have the answer to that. Listen, we seek life. And these little humans that are inside these mamas in this room, God is forming them. And anything else is an outright attack on God. It's not a social issue. It's not a justice issue. It's not a woman's right issue or a health issue. More importantly, it is a God issue. And that's where we stand. And so this is a massive issue. Third, we must live out the truth of our life-giving God. Well, how do we do that? This is some practical, I think, biblical things to kind of think through. Well, first of all, I think we pray. We pray that God will deliver children from the wickedness of man. We pray that God will deliver parents, particularly young moms, fathers who father children outside of marriage, and we pray that God would convict them of that. We pray for doctors and nurses that would conduct such horrible procedures. Pray for a culture, a, a death culture that's in America. We pray that they would see it as an assault on God. So we pray. We pray that God would help. Uh, that's the first and foremost step that I have to do because there's so much of that going on. I go, what do I do, God? And first of all, I pray. A good friend of mine gave me a testimony of his daughter who had strayed away. and She had a relationship with a young man and found herself pregnant. She didn't want her father to know because her father had taught the truth to her at some level. Before she could get to the clinic, she ran into an old man that she had heard him teach that only God can give life. The man said nothing to her. He just looked at her. Had no idea what she was going to do. Had no, no responsibility. Just, just by God's ordained sovereign plan, bumped into him. She went home and told her father. And her father helped her. And that baby's still alive and being raised. You can vote for pro-life candidates. Now this is where it gets a little sticky with American Christians. We can want to vote for the one who will help our business the best. And he's kind of pro-life. A Christian cannot mark a ballot 
that is for someone who will let a child die. You just can't do it. And you say, well, what about our country? And what about our economy? And what about all this? And, and we got to do well so our missionaries can be supported. And you go, all that. Like, whoa, 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 where'd God go? All of a sudden, we have, to, we have to somehow figure that out. And we're so passionate about politics of people who maybe we like their administrative ideas and things that they're going, but they don't protect life fully. You have to vote that way. And promise you, it's not a popular vote. What are some other things you can do? Well, consider joining and volunteering in a place like Alpha Pregnancy. Is Maria Calder Cal- Cal- here? She, they're usually here. I know they, their, their son, they've gone through some things with him. And, uh, but that's a great organization. Grace House. We have organizations that are around here. You can get involved with that. I, I think one of the things that Riverbend is doing very, very well is our warm ministry. It is front line with gals who are struggling, um, have, have struggled with some of these issues, have, have got themselves in places where they need God to come and do a great work, and God has sent Riverbend there for almost 10 years now. And we are seeing the fruit of that, of our young ladies that are in our church and life skills given to them. And what God's doing is amazing in that ministry. It is not a great ministry from a financial standpoint, like, oh, wow, we got all these guys coming to church. We're going to profit from that. No, that's not why we do it at all. We love these women. And God loved them and knows them. And so we send some of our best women into that. And there they help. And who knows what has been stop from happening because those girls heard the gospel. And so you can get involved with our warm ministry. It's missional. I'm telling you, it's one of our missions. Jesus said to go to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, the end of the earth. This is our Jerusalem right here. This is one of our Jerusalem ministries. Find some of these leaders in warm and say, how can I help? How can I pray? How can I give? How can I be a part of this? This is a tremendous ministry. Consider adoption. Some of you have, and I'm so proud of you. Some of you have been advocates of foster care. You've taken in orphans. Our church does well when it comes to needs. We meet needs and food, and we get teams of people together to go share the gospel and give them a turkey at the same time. I love those things. What about dads to those without without dads? I look down at my dear friend, Jamie Harvey, sitting behind my wife over here, and you see all those children in those rows? Not all those are his. <laughs> They're neighbor kids. Kids that need a godly dad in their life. Michael Moore, I know you're here somewhere. Michael Moore has a ministry to, to men to help them be fathers to the fatherless. I appreciate that, Michael. I don't know where you're at, but I know you're working at that. You're challenging us to be involved. There are so many ways that we can do things. Imagine getting involved with a young man who has a godly man involved in his life. Do you think that he will go down that road and be part of some kind of abortion plot to get rid of a child? Their better odds are because he knows Jesus Christ. He would not do that. How about counseling young parents? We have mom's moments of grace and mentoring ladies who mentor our ladies. These are such an important thing. There's more of that desires wanting to happen. I hear that. We have to keep pushing towards those things. This pushes back. This is a way. Yes, if you want to go to Washington and carry a sign, knock yourself out. Tell them the truth, though. But this is a way we battle it on the home front. Teach people who God is and what he's called us to do. But I think we do need to be ready to speak out in conversations about what really matters. You need to be patient and compassionate, but you have to have conviction and knowledge. This isn't a time to be angry with somebody. It's a time to show them that there's a God that knows you. Tell them what he has done for you. And most importantly, do not live out the, go- the gospel. Let theology drive that conversation with them. God can open the eyes of people. He did it for you. He can do it for them. Make your conversation about our Lord. And finally, just don't read about forgiveness. Live it out. Grant it. You're going to run into people who need forgiveness in this area and many other areas. You have to forgive. 
We have to forgive and we have to stand as a church that has the way to be forgiven. Paul said, it's a trustworthy statement deserving a full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And young woman, if you're here today, you have had an abortion. First, I would ask you to repent and turn to Jesus. He will forgive you. And we want to help you. We want to help you know this God of Psalms 139, this God that Job known. We want to care for you. And we have many things in place already. Our warm gals are counseling and working through so many of these issues. Please know you're forgiven. If you need to talk to somebody, I myself will stand down here. I'll invite some of our warm ladies to come with me down here. If you're here and you need to talk to somebody, please don't leave this room. We want to help you through this. Father in heaven, I thank you for the tender, loving care you give to us. That passage teaches us that theology is intimate. It is not abstract. It's personal. And you know us and love us and watch over us and form us. And so God, let our theology drive our view of the things the world fights over. And may we be clear in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.